Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, how borders make and break our world with James Crawford and his new book, The Edge of the Plain. James Crawford is an acclaimed historian, publisher and broadcaster. Born in Shetland in 1978, he studied history and philosophy of law at the University of Edinburgh, winning the Lord President Cooper Memorial Prize, and for over a decade, he worked for and researched Scotland's National Collection of Architecture and Archaeology. He is the author of Fallen Glory, The Lives and Deaths of the World's Greatest Lost Buildings, which was shortlisted for the best non-fiction book at the Saltire Literary Awards, and he has scripted and presented three series of the landmark BBC One documentary Scotland from the Sky. In 2019, he was named as the first ever Scottish ambassador for the UK Archive and Records Association's Explore Your Archive campaign. And today we're going to be talking about James's new book, which is The Edge of the Plain, how borders make and break our world. James, welcome to Little Atoms. Delighted to be here, Neil. Tell us, first of all, then, where your obsession with borders comes from. I guess there are a number of strands as to why I'm so interested in borders. I mean, you mentioned there my my academic background, which is in legal philosophy. And that was about the history of law. It was about the, the constructs that we create, the legal system being one of them, but democracy being another and obviously the nation state being one as well, to try and put boundaries, put limits and control our world. So it was something from an academic side I was already interested in. But I was born, as you said in the intro, in 1978. So I I kind of grew up with the Cold War. And in particular, I had a bit of an obsession with the Berlin Wall. You know, it was just, it was this, a wall such a simple thing. It's such an easy thing to understand. Even a child can understand the idea of a wall dividing this place, you know, this city, but not just a city, but countries and ultimately the world in two. So the Berlin Wall was this kind of focal point for the Cold War. It was something that split the world into two factions, into east and west. And, you know, I I kind of remember when I was a child that there was still the conspector of of nuclear war. You know, there was still a fear that that could happen. So when 
the wall came down in November 1989. I was just 11 years old, but it was a really vivid thing for me. I remember watching on the news as, as these kind of slabs of wall crashed to the ground and you had East Berliners and West Berliners dancing on the top of the wall. But I think what's so interesting about that borderline, if you like, was it had already fallen before any part of the physical structure had come down. There was a sort of diplomatic, bureaucratic mistake that resulted in East Germans converging on Checkpoint Charlie because they thought that the border was being opened. And by that point, it was just too late. So the the border, that wall had ceased to exist in people's minds, while the physical one still existed. So, you know, that sense of how we create these constructs and borders ultimately don't exist naturally. You get ecological borders, you do get natural borders, they're known as ecotones. And, you know, one of the most obvious ones is something like the tree line, you know, that place above which trees won't grow. So it creates a natural border that, of course, can can shift. But the political borders we create are not natural at all. So they have to be a story. They have to be a story that we tell. And really, this book was about trying to see where was the origin of that story? Where did we start? And how has that story evolved over time? And how do I unpick those stories to try and understand what bordering is, where it came from, and where it may be going? And also at the beginning of the book, you tell a story of migration, which obviously is inextricably linked from the idea of borders. A rather quietly remarkable migration story about both your sets of grandparents or great-grandparents. And they did the migration story in a way that we don't often hear. That's right. They were economic migrants. And these days, calling someone an economic migrant is, is a pejorative term. You know, it's suggesting that they're looking for something, looking to take something from you, looking to come to your country and take something from you, whether it's your jobs or money or, or welfare. But, you know, both of my, on both sides of my family, my great grandparents left Scotland to go to America. And, you know, this wasn't the sort of economic migration that is allowed, which is kind of from upwardly mobile people seeking high skilled work in other countries. You know, on my mother's side, my great grandparents were, were farmers. My great grandfather was a, was a stable keeper and my great grandmother was a housekeeper. And on my father's side, my great grandfather was a fisherman. He came from a long family of fishermen. So they both left Scotland, both sides of both of them, my great grandparents left Scotland at the start of the 20th century. On my mother's side, they passed through Ellis Island in 1908. At that time, it was the busiest Ellis Island had ever been. It was processing about a million migrants every single year. And they went from there, they got on a train and, and moved into the continental interior. And they had picked up work on a cattle ranch essentially in the middle of nowhere on the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains. And my great-grandfather looked after the horses and my great-grandmother looked after the men with my great-grandfather's sister, who'd also come along with them. And they sort of stuck it out for two winters, two years, really, until my great-grandmother just couldn't cope with the isolation. And, you know, she found the cowboys taciturn. They were looking after Texas longhorn cattle. Actually, the land that they were in 60 years ago would have been Mexico. You know, that was the dividing line between the US and Mexico up until 1848. And it was also land that the Ute uh, Native American tribe had been moved off. It was land that had been occupied by others that they had come to. And ultimately, you know, they found their dream unfulfilled and they returned to Scotland and, and returned to work on a farm. 
And then my great grandfather on my father's side left when he was 16 and moved into Detroit from Canada. And he was asked what his occupation was and he put what he wanted it to be, which was mechanic. And he ended up working in the Henry Ford motor plant, the Highland Park plant on the assembly line, fabricating the the Model T car. And he stayed there for longer. He was there for a decade. My grandfather was born in Detroit as well. But this coincided with the Great Depression, the Wall Street crash in 1929, which triggered the Great Depression. And it ended with my great-grandmother and great-grandfather sitting in their kitchen, tossing a coin to decide whether to stay in this country that they'd made their new home where their children had been born, or whether to return to Scotland. You know, it's heads or tails. It was heads to go, tails to stay. They flicked the coin in the air and it was Liberty's head on a silver dime that was facing them from the tabletop. So they made the decision to go and to return to Scotland. And it's always kind of struck me, you know, that coin toss. I mean, there are always so many, we talk about sliding doors moments or moments in a life. It's such a binary thing, the coin toss. And if it had landed the other way up, I wouldn't have existed. My whole family wouldn't have existed. But there's also something about the fact that my great-grandparents could move. You know, they had the ability to move. They had the capacity to move. They were welcomed into America. It was their decision to leave America. Today, that's not the case. You know, people really can't move, particularly people who come from poor backgrounds are not given the capacity to move through our world. And there is a quite significant inequality down to the individual level of who can cross a border. And so that's another thing that I was looking to try and explore in this book. Humans have obviously you know, created territories and, and borders far beyond recorded history. So it's impossible to say what the first ones would have been. But you talk in the book about the oldest extant artefact of something that was definitely a border, and we'll call it the first border. So tell us the story about the first border. Yeah, I mean, that I struggle with that same idea. Is it the first border? Of course it's not. But what it is, is the first one that tells us definitively that it's a border. The reason it tells us that is because there's writing all over it. And it's the earliest known form of human writing, which is Sumerian cuneiform. And the border pillar, which is what it is, it's a boundary marker that was placed between two city-states in Mesopotamia around four and a half thousand years ago. And it's about the same size and shape as a concrete bollard, although it is fabricated from a kind of creamy limestone. It's quite a beautiful object. And at the start of the book, I go to the British Museum and and get it out of storage. It's not on permanent display there. It, It lives in storage most of the time. And the inscription that was on it was only translated in 2018. So it's only really from that point on that it's been able to be identified as this as this kind of earliest border. And the story it tells is of a rivalry between these two city states. It says that the border was drawn by the father of all the gods of Mesopotamia and that the line shouldn't be crossed. And there's a particular dispute over an area of of rich, fertile farmland that one of the cities has ownership of and the, the other craves. So Lagash is one of the cities and it has this rich, fertile land and Uma wants it. So Uma's constantly going over the borderline and taking it. And the translation, actually, for, for what they call this area of land is the Guendina, 
which translates as the edge of the plain, which gives the title of the book. And for about 150 years, this dispute rolls on with Uma constantly taking this piece of land and Lagash constantly taking it back. And the border marker was put in place to really demarcate the story, to say this is the borderline. It was one of a number of border markers, but it's one of the few ones that has turned up and that, that, that still exists and that we can still look at. What you also find on that border marker, and this is both exhilarating and, and chilling, is the first recorded use in human history of the term no man's land. And it's employed to describe an exclusion zone, which was put in place after Lagash had seized the land back from Uma on one of numerous occasions to say that actually not only were they not allowed to cross the borderline, they weren't allowed to come within a kilometre of the borderline. They called that territory no man's land. So you can find that written in cuneiform on this pillar. And I did find I touched it with my fingers. And it's a really charged moment because if you think about what that phrase now means, particularly in the context of the First World War, you know, it cuts to the heart of humanity's endless capacity for fighting over space. And here we have it in what's effectively the earliest historical text writing about borders. You know, it's just, it suggests that there's something eternal in our ability to contest area and to contest territory. But what's also interesting about it is this sense that it's trying to demarcate territory as being something that's not just a certain group of humans have moved into this area and by tradition they've occupied it and they've held it. It's saying that it was apportioned to them by God. And that is another aspect in the evolution of borders, if you like, in that kind of story of identity that's poured into the lines that we draw. And I think it's really fascinating to see it so long ago and to see how that's continued up to the present day. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to James Crawford, and we're talking about his new book, The Edge of the Plane, How Borders Make and Break Our World. And James, you go on to look at, well, you take various travels around various borders, which is eventually curtailed because of the events that have happened over the last two years. But I want to look at some of the areas you go to and and, and the various types of borders you see. And, And to begin with, the land of of Sarpmi, which is the um, the home of the Sami in um, in northern Scandinavia, and their cross border lands that keep changing, and obviously their migration patterns. And you talk about their ongoing battle for autonomy that's been going on for centuries now. Yes, I mean I was really keen to have that as a starting point because you have a sense of this indigenous people who effectively have occupied this territory since around the end of the last ice age predominantly because they were hunters and they followed the reindeers. The reindeer migrated northwards as the as the glaciers receded. So they've occupied this territory. They, for a long, long time, hunted the reindeer. And for a long, long time, no one else was in that landscape at all. But then gradually, nations start to encroach on their territory. And eventually, you have four nation states occupying this landscape of, of Satmi. And it's Finland, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. So the borders that they draw cut this landscape into pieces. They fracture it. And one of the journeys that I went on was a guide took me by snowmobile across a frozen lake. And actually crossing that frozen lake is a border between Sweden and Finland. So as we sort of headed out on our snowmobiles across the lake, we were almost carving the border into that lake because it constantly occupies this frozen lake. And for only about three or four months of the year, is it actually water? The rest of the time, it's, it's encased in ice. And the end point of this journey, we found what's called the, the three-country cairn, a tri-point. And it's the place where the borders of Sweden, Norway, and Finland all meet. And there's not much to it. It's a large sort of concrete fustum. It has a stone pillar, three-sided stone pillar put on top of it, which has the names of each of the different countries facing into the the country that um, it represents. Of course, it doesn't mention Satmi at all. And, you know, there's something fun about it in that there's an element of time travel because Finland's an hour ahead of, of Norway and Sweden. So you can sort of jokingly go back in time and forward in time just by crossing the lines. But also you you have something that's a bit like a stake hammered into this ancient territory of Satmin that splits it all these different ways. And that almost felt like a good story to tell about the impact of bordering on the more nomadic way of life. And there are very few people who still cling to that nomadic way of life, but the Sami or certain Sami now, not very many of them, but certain Sami now still do. So I was just really fascinated by by sort of following their story. And particularly their territory was always mutable. You know, they were about the movement of the reindeer. And, and now they live with this kind of almost semi-domestication with the reindeer. But that sense that the, the migration of the reindeer herds almost drew the borders of their landscape and how different that is to the formation of the nation state, which is about setting hard borders, hard cartographical borders that are drawn accurately into the land. So I wanted to explore that that whole tension between these two completely different cultures, if you like. Yeah, and you talk about how there were like sort of like extended family groups who would, you know, have a herd and that would almost make up a sort of proto-nation. And so the borders of their territory would be constantly 
if you can almost imagine like borders moving constantly in different ways across the country as the various different groups of people wandered around. That's right. I mean, you know, that's still the case for those Sami people. And, you know, over time, their whole way of life is based around the reindeer. And the reindeer have very specific migration patterns. You know, they, they have to look for food, which is ground-like and which they'll find beneath the frozen earth. And when summer comes and the temperature rises, they have to move up to the high ground where it's not so hot. They then, as autumn approaches, move back down to the lower ground. What we're finding with climate change is, of course, those migration patterns have to change. It's harder to find the food. The movement of the reindeer has to alter. But at the same time, they're also increasingly being forbidden from crossing territorial borderlines, which has this quite fundamental impact on on how the Sami can, can live their life. One of the things that the Sami are arguing for is user rights to the landscape. And, and they have their own parliaments. They have a discrete population now. So they, they exist almost like a borderless nation, but they don't have territory per se. And they're arguing for user rights to the landscape. And there may be within that whole process, the kernel of something that could change how we border, that ownership isn't something unique to a nation, but actually the landscape is something that we use in common. I don't anticipate that the world is going to change like that anytime soon or perhaps ever, but it does demonstrate that there are alternatives to how we manage and how we own or rather use territory. Well, hold that thought because we're going we're gonna to come back to something similar right at the end. But moving further on in the book, you meet some guys who are documenting in the US, documenting the borders of where Mexico used to be. Yeah, I was really fascinated by this project because it felt like it touched on so many of the themes that I wanted to explore in this book. I think there's such a fixation right now on the US-Mexico border. You know, it's there's record migration, record number of migrants are arriving at that borderline and trying to cross that borderline right now. There was obviously the Trump administration's attempt to build a wall all along that borderline to really, really harden that border. And there's almost this sense that this is this really hard fixed line. It's this eternal line that's always been there between America and between Mexico. And of course, the reality is far from that. And this project that I stumbled upon was two artists, a Mexican and American artist, who went on a sort of two and a half thousand mile road trip to try and mark a historical borderline. And it was the border that existed between the US and Mexico between 1819 and 1848. Actually, originally it was the US and New Spain, and then in 1821 it became the Republic of Mexico. So this was a borderline that started on the west on what is now the state line between Oregon and California. It cut in a straight line east, then descends south through the middle of what is now Colorado, and eventually ends up on the Gulf of Mexico on what is the state line between Louisiana and Texas. So you had half a million square miles of what is now America that was Mexico. You know, entire states like Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, California, parts of states like Colorado and Ohio, parts of Kansas that were part of Mexico. So what they did was they had a white sprinter van filled with flat pack materials, um, sort of galvanized steel and, and, and wooden bases, And they drove this old borderline 
and marked it by putting these obelisks, which were just like the obelisks that were put in place to mark the US-Mexico borderline after 1848, the current US-Mexico borderline. And they went on this journey through the landscape to draw this borderline, which was never drawn because it was only ever described in a treaty. So as, as one of the artists, Marco, Marcos Ramirez, put it to me, he wanted to kind of mark the scar, mark the wound, and then let it fade. And for him, the journey was a kind of a nostalgic trip. But, you know, it was a nostalgia, as he put it to me, for something that Mexico had never had, that he had never had, this old Mexican landscape that he was driving through that ultimately became America. And, you know, what's so interesting about America generally is there is no country on earth that was more created and conceived through the idea of a moving borderline. You know, everyone knows about the American frontier. The border of America essentially started on the East Coast with the arrival of the pilgrims, and then it steadily moved further and further west. And there was an American historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, who came up with this concept at the end of the 19th century called frontier. It was his frontier thesis, he called it. And it was the idea that the frontier and the continual movement of that frontier was actually what made Americans American. You know, it was almost, to paraphrase Donald Trump, it was what made America great, this moving border. And obviously, at some point, that has to stop. And it was supposed to stop at the Allegheny Mountains, but then it moved further west. It was supposed to stop at the Mississippi, then it moved further west. It was supposed to stop at the 1819 US-Mexico border, but then it moved further west. So I think there's something really fascinating in current US border policy when you actually you think about the creation of that nation and how so much of what America was about was this moving borderline. I mentioned that this book was written during the pandemic. And how did that change your approach? I mean, obviously, travel, but in terms of how you thought about the idea of borders, because obviously suddenly the world was brought to a standstill and nobody was moving and crossing borders. Yeah, I mean, we've talked already about my, my journey to Satme and to Norway. And actually, I, I left Norway the day that Norway shut its borders to all non-nationals. Within two weeks, the UK was in lockdown. So I was, I was kind of in the thick of it in terms of the, the, the travel itself, I was supposed to be traveling to, I was actually supposed to be flying into Denver a month later, and I was going to drive the route of that historical borderline that I've just talked about and, and head on to, to Tucson. So there was obviously an impact on the travel that I was trying to do for the book, and I had to sort of on the hoof find ways around that. But as you say, the fact that border suddenly became headline news, and, you know, lots of discussion about their hardness and their softness and their porosity. And obviously, a sense that in some way in the book, I had to tackle this idea of the pandemic. I was already thinking of writing about pandemics, but almost in the kind of theoretical sense rather than the active, actual sense. And suddenly we were living in this pandemic. So I, I kind of reconceived and added an entirely new chapter, which looked at biological borderlines. And it was fascinating to do that, to see how much, you know, going all the way back to the Black Death, that so much of the technological or theoretical development of borderlines was about containing disease, was about the, you know, realising that, that disease travelled. So there had to be some form of spatial containment. At the same time, I was really fascinated 
about what was happening at a, at a cellular level when a virus was trying to cross the border into our bodies. You know, what, what was going on within the body? What defence mechanisms and what sort of border defences did cells put up to stop this incursion coming in, if you like, from the invasion of the, the virus? So I thought there were really interesting parallels to explore there, both at the sort of global level, but also at that kind of, uh, you know, the macro and the, the microcosmal level. I thought there was something really interesting to explore there. And just to finish off, you you mentioned this idea when we were talking about the Sami of, you know, whether or not this idea of a permanently sort of permeable border where people live was is something we could look to in the future. And and then obviously we talked about, you know, this present moment or the last few years has seen from, you know, Trump's border wall to Brexit to, you know, the boats in the English Channel, an impulse to close borders is going on. But obviously, the future is going to see the planet warming and warming more and more. Immigration is going to be on migration is 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 going to be on a, you know, a scale unimaginable now. And maybe this is a way of, of looking to how we deal with the future. I think I think it is. I mean, it's obviously going to be very difficult. And the parallels between climate change, and the current system of bordering that we operate are very valid. In fact, the two things are inextricably linked. You know, the impact of climate change on migration, I think, is there increasingly for everyone to see. And as you say, as we look to the future, that's only going to increase. We're looking at large parts of the planet that potentially, if there is no mitigation of emissions, if there's no significant change to business as usual, that are going to become almost uninhabitable, or certainly are going to be out with the boundaries of habitability that humans have normally tried to stick to. And you know, some research suggests that could be in the region of 3.5 billion people who will live in these places where humans have never tended to live before, which suggests that mass migration is absolutely inevitable. At the moment, what we're seeing as a response to that is a hardening of borders. You know, we see it in the UK, we see it in the US, Mexico, we see it on the very fringes of Europe. A sense that there is a, a tidal wave, if you like, of migrants coming. And that the response to that is to put up as large a barrier as we can. Now, at the moment, we're not seeing that mass wave. We're actually seeing quite small numbers of migrants in the overall scheme of things coming towards our shores, even if they're coming in record numbers. But if you, you know, wherever you stand politically, if you look to the next hundred years, you've got to think that there's going to be a level of pressure put on borders that has, is unprecedented, that's never been put on them before. We're already seeing the fracturing of those borders. We're already seeing the outsourcing of the physical borders. You know, the plan to put refugees on planes to Rwanda is almost about saying, even if you cross the channel and land on a beach in Dover, you've still not crossed the UK border because the UK border for you is in Rwanda. The US operate border outposts beyond the US-Mexico border into Central America. They they operate them at the southern border of Mexico. They operate them in Ecuador. They operate them in El Salvador. So, you know, there's this kind of pushing outwards of the border lines. It's almost fracturing the physical lines. It's almost like the border lines that we have now are symbols of a pre-internet, pre-globalized, pre-pandemic era. And what we're going to see is more of a fixation on the individual. And within that fixation, there is the potential because the primacy of the individual is at the heart of human rights, there's the potential for the realisation of a universal right to move. On the other side of that, and we see this already in somewhere like China, people being monitored and surveilled and 
almost bordering as something that looks not just outwards, but inwards as a means of social control. And I think that's the that's the kind of dystopian future, if you like, versus the rather more palatable future of, of accepting a universal human right to move. The problem with the universal human right to move, of course, is that it does not work with the system of bordering that we operate. And I think that is the clash that is already happening and is only going to intensify in the next century between that need for people to leave places where it just isn't possible for them to live and that desire for nation states and particularly we're seeing the rise of a number of right-wing governments across Europe and potentially in America as well to stop those people from moving. And that is the crisis that we have to face. And that's why we need to be having conversations about what borders are, what they can be in the future and what they're doing right now and where they came from. Because in many ways, they are so arbitrary. They're, they're so much about a national story that we've told ourselves. And there's, there's a kind of real sense that they're fixed. But if you look at the history of borders, they've always been mutable and they've always been changeable and they've always been shifting. So nothing is fixed. So there's the potential to change them. So I've been talking to James Crawford. We've been talking about his book, The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World, which is out in the UK now from Canongate. James, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks very much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.